Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song by some fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, that runs for the fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 68th episode of the Nauticast entitled The Meaning of Life, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Daenerys 9 in which Danny wakes up from trippy nightmares of fire and blood and death to find, well, a reality full of fire and blood and death. Very extremely cheerful things that are going on in this Danny chapter. This chapter is bleak. Bleak <laughs> and, and depressing and, and vividly horrible and... We, uh, we're so pleased to have a guest uh, on this week who's really qualified to dissect all the layers of horribleness that goes into this chapter. Uh, you may know her from the podcast Girls Gone Canon, along with Chloe Ketchum. Uh, you may know her from her uh, excellent writings on Daenerys Targaryen, including an essay that ties directly into this chapter that we're going to be discussing towards the end. Or you may know her from her episode that she did with us way back towards the beginning of this podcast, also mm-hmm. on Daenerys' chapter, her second chapter in the book, back when we were a baby podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, Eliana. Yeah, if I look back, I am lost. Can't can't go back to that to that episode ever again. No. Um, yeah, so I'm qualified to talk about this chapter because I too have trippy nightmares of fire and blood and death, and wake to realities full of them as well. Wow, um, that, that's intense. <laughs> that's not true at all. <laughs> life's a, life's alright. Thank you so much for having me back. Um, it's great to reprise, you know, coming back together, hanging out. Getting the gang, the band back together. Um, as you said, I am on Girls Gone Canon with uh, with Chloe, aka Lies and Arbor, and super jazzed to be here. I'm sad it's not the 69th episode mm-hmm. though. Mm-hmm. You just missed out. It's true. Our 69th episode is going to be on on the Lannister men just staring at each other and being obsessed with each other and themselves, and that's kind of perfect in a way. But yeah, sadly, you missed out on the most important anniversary of them all uh yeah that's gonna be a really really that's fun premature. one um it, it's funny when you came on for episode 12 you were talking about this grand essay you were working on about daenerys and shakespeare all the way back then and there's some exciting news that just recently happened about that essay <laughs> what i was thinking about leading up to this episode is that it's actually kind of really great for me to come here and share this with you because jeff you have been my cheerleader not just like when i came on a year ago for this since like I first met you, like I don't know, four or five years ago, you would check in on me like on a regular basis, like throughout those many years, and you're like, "Hey, how's that? How's that essay on Daenerys coming?" I'm like, "Life is full of fire and blood and death. <laughs> um, that's my reality." And now here it is. It it's done. I put it out uh, at the beginning of season eight, uh, right after, I think. Well, not right after. A little after episode one of season eight. Yes, it was. It's an amazing essay, and you know, everyone give Eliana a clap because this essay took almost four years to write, and so it's amazing that it's finally done. It is a massive, amazing piece of work. Then we are going to be discussing it at significant length at the end of this episode. So. Thank you, friend, for coming on. It's a lot of we're really excited to talk about this chapter about Daenerys with you. I thank you for uh, congratulating me. It sounds like I'm, I don't know, like I'm graduating, <laughs> getting a degree, and moving As on to the next gather, part of my life, which you know. Oh my we God. Re- <laughs> I was like laughing aloud outside when I got to that part of that episode. But in a way, uh, you know, Girls Gone Canon is moving on to another second phase of its life. We are starting another reread with another book series that is not A Song of Ice and Fire. We are going to begin the His Dark Materials trilogy and maybe the other books that go around it. We've been calling it His Dark Materials because it kind of just sounds like that when you say it quickly. (laughs) 
That's very exciting. I've, I've never read historic materials before, but I am going to start reading with you guys. So I'm going to be going at the pace that you guys go for your podcast, as we were talking about before we went on air for this episode. So it's very, very exciting that you guys are going to be exploring yet another part of this uh, so-called literature fan community that we have here with so many books besides Song of Ice and Fire. I know it's weird, right? There are other books besides George R. R. Martin's The Song of Ice and Fire, the Duncan Egg novellas. There's Duncan Egg. <laughs> and the World of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood and all the, the novellas, the history novellas too. So it's very exciting. So we're looking forward to seeing what you guys put forward. I'm looking forward to reading this new book. It's going to be crazy. Yeah, this is great news. I actually have read the His Dark Materials before. I'm a big fan of those books. I'm going to be really interested to hear what you have to say. I love that you guys are branching out from Song of Ice and Fire, so can't wait. Absolutely. So this episode is brought to you by our small council patrons on Patreon, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ring Octoling, Lord Shake, Assistant to the Hand of the King, and Lady, Z- and Lady Zena Valyrian. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we talk about in all episodes, we'll be potentially talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duck and Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Windsor sample chapters. And for this specific episode, we will be talking a lot about Game of Thrones Season 8, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Shamik C, one of our Sworn Sword patrons, who asks, So George has established that coming back from the dead fundamentally changes you, as seen in Beric and Stoneheart. So, would it not make sense that in the books that John would be a much different person with a different personality than before, unlike as on the show following his likely resurrection? I don't imagine that resurrected John gets off so easy that he comes back with his whole personality intact. New John likely would not have the same motivations as the OG Jon Snow, the highly moral slash honorable character. Maybe he's more pragmatic and ruthless and that's why Danny connects so well to him, a sense of kindred spirits and vice versa. It would make the whole John slays Danny much more meaningful that this act is what truly restores John to being that honorable slash moral character that he once was. Yeah, that's a, a lot of great questions combined into one about John and how he's going to move forward from his uh, assassination. There's definitely a wide spectrum of theories and ideas about how this is going to work in the books, specifically in relation to the show. So what do you think about that, Jeff? So this is a great question, and I love the premise, first off, because... I feel a lot like a lot of things about season eight. We will talk more about this in the episode itself, but I feel like for a lot of things for season eight, all of the endpoints are exactly as George imagines them to be. John kills Danny, Brant is the Iron Throne, John is exiled north of the Wall. All of those things feel very George, but all of the buildup and setup and the thematic foreshadowing and groundwork, it's just not quite present in the show the same way that it's going to be present in the books. So what happens to John after he's assassinated at the end of A Dance of Dragons? As we've talked about in the past, we are likely looking at something where John comes back more wolfish, comes back being reanimated as a reanimated corpse, potentially resembling cold hands, potentially resembling someone like Beric Dondarrion or Varavir Sixkins as well. So having that background means that we're looking at a Jon Snow who is likely going to be more ruthless, less concerned about human life, less concerned about restoring and protecting innocence as opposed to 
the person who will likely be much more feral, much more wolf-like, and much more animated by fire. These are the types of things that we're going to be seeing in John in The Winds of Winter, most likely. Now, the interesting thing about that is that when it when, da- when John and Danny come together, when they intersect at some point, probably in A Dream of Spring, John is not going to be this kind of just dull, moral, noble guy that Danny intersects with. Likely, he's going to be more ambitious. I think that, as we've talked about in the past, John coming back from the dead and people coming back from the dead, a lot of times they they typically fixate on the last thing that was motivating and driving them. And one of the last things that was motivating and driving John was him marching on Winterfell and taking down Ramsay Bolton and saving Arya Stark from the clutches of Ramsay and his henchmen. So I imagine that is going to be what John is going to be fixated on. And he's going to be more ambitious, more likely trying to establish himself as Lord Stark of Winterfell and eventually the King of the North. Having him intercept with Danny, who is going to be more pragmatic and ruthless as well, is going to be interested. It's going to be interesting because, as Shamik said, they have a sense of kindred spirits with each other potentially, as Danny has a rebirth on the Dothraki Sea at the end of her arc in A Dance with Dragons. And that's going to make it really interesting because I do wonder whether John killing Danny in at the end of a dream of spring will be as a, will be framed as a noble act by George or whether it'll be framed as maybe a more amoral slash ambiguous act. Maybe as I talked about in some of our episode analyses, we thought that maybe John would come back and kill Danny because perhaps she threatens the independence of the North or maybe she wants to establish, maybe she has errors, the second Targaryen ambitions of building a new capital in the realm or something like that. There's a lot of different possibilities and theories that could go into who John is and who Danny is when they intersect in a dream of spring. But I do think that it's going to be a less moral, less honorable act than what we saw portrayed on screen in season eight. What do you think, Eliana? So, yeah, when I first read this question about, would it not make sense that in the books, John would be a much different person? The different personality after Resurrection? I was like, yes. Yes, you would think that based on things that George has said. That that makes perfect sense. Um, and because of that, I, I agree with a lot of what you've said. I'm not sure what John is going to be like when he comes back, because to an extent, we have seen different shades of what the undead look like upon returning. And I think Lady Stoneheart is absolutely a manifestation of that vengeance, of, of that ruthlessness. But Beric Dondarrion is not necessarily. So I almost wonder, would John be some sort of different angle or mirror? I don't know. But it would be interesting for him to also reflect Lady Stoneheart, to reflect Catelyn, the mother that he wished, the, the woman that he wished would fill in a mother role for him, but isn't. You know, then that they both are Starks in many ways, but not uh, in in how they act in the story. But in regards to his meeting with Danny, what I think, what intrigues me is something that's a little different because, I mean, this chapter that we're about to encounter, right? This is Danny seeing the limits of resurrection, of what it means to bring life back from the dead, and they kind of glazed over the fact that John was resurrected in the show. Everyone was like. Yeah, he came back, and it's like, everyone's just fine with this? Y'all are just, like, cool with this? I mean, we're fighting an army of the undead, but you're cool with this one? Like, how come no one's like, this is weird? Or like, are you sure? You really died? I don't I don't know. There, this isn't questioned. And I feel like this is something that Danny would question, because she would be like, why you? Why not Drogo? I gave up so much to bring back my husband. How come of all the people who got to come back, it was you? And I think that's something that would make her stop and question things and, and maybe be part of that wedge in their relationship, or it would 
definitely be something for them. Those are great points. I think what you just said there reminds me of what Arya says to Thoros in A Storm of Swords when she learns that he can bring people back from the dead. And she asks him, okay, you did that for, for Barrett. Could you do it for my father? Why are you attacking me? <laughs> <laughs> That's my job. And yeah, that, that definitely could, could come into play there with John. And yeah, I, I kind of take a median position in terms of who John's going to be when he comes back. Because I don't think it's going to be far, as far as someone like Stoneheart. And it will make a difference that he has ghosts to hide out mm-hmm. in for a while, so to speak. But that itself is going to have its own impact on yes. him, as suggested in Varamir's prologue to A Dance with Dragons. So he's definitely going to come back altered, I think, somewhere along a spectrum of, you know, what do you want to call it, more kind of cold and hard or more pragmatic. Although he's he's got his, his brutal pragmatic moments in dance, too, like when he sends Gilly away. So I, I think there, there, it's going to be a change in more degree, not kind, but I definitely think it's going to be noticeable and it's going to intersect in an interesting way with uh, Danny, who is coming back aggressively to Westeros and may have just dealt with young Griff, the purported son of Rhaegar, and now <laughs> has to deal with the real one. I think there's there's going to be a lot of interesting parallels. That's definitely an aspect I would I would love most to see in Winds is the parallels and contrast between Jon and Danny and their struggles, just like we saw in Dance. So that's that's definitely a great angle to pursue. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun to look at the different character traits that John and Dan, that John and Dan, that John and Danny embody. Come the winds of winter, much as it dance, it's it's very intentional. George's part to showcase John and Danny's leadership qualities and their mutual leaders leading of Marine and the Night's Watch. There, the different challenges they face. So, uh, I will be very curious to see them on. If you want to call it maybe the offense come the winds of winter, potentially, with Danny going through Essos on into Westeros and John potentially abandoning the Night's Watch. And who knows what happens with John Sark come the winds of winter. There's a lot of different ways that George could go about doing it. I am very curious to see how the finished product looks because I think that John's arc is one of the ones that I have a big question mark about in terms of the plot direction. Not about the thematics, but definitely about the plot direction. Well said, sir. And speaking of Jon Snow and his arc, we're going to be getting into that in our next Patreon-only episode, which is going to be called Whitewash to Danny, John, and Tyrion in Game of Thrones. It's going to be out tomorrow, Tuesday, June 25th, if you're listening on our general release day for our small council patrons, out on Wednesday, June 26th for our Kingsguard patrons, and out on Thursday, June 27th for our Poor Fellow and Sworn Sword patrons. And this uh last maybe last we don't know episode on game of thrones is going to be about the general direction that those three characters and specifically took on the last few seasons of game of thrones and the way that while they certainly had strong scenes and weak scenes like any other character in the show there's something in common and that is a general scrubbing away of the darker and more complicated edges we see emerge for those three characters particularly in a dance with dragons we're going to be talking about plot points and certain character decisions, the way they're put in context with other characters, just a lot of the ways these cumulative decisions with these three specifically contribute to a much different and we think somewhat less interesting outcome for these three than we're going to see in the books. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun to get to kind of dig into these characters and to parallel them between their versions in the book and show. And of course, for those of you, we have got a few questions about this. So just to briefly answer one question we've seen a fair amount of, if you do sign up for a patron, you get all of our bonus patron episodes. So it's going to be all 17 episodes when this one comes out. So the 16 previous episodes, as well as this whitewashed episode itself. And that is available at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOIF. We really appreciate everyone's patronage. And we will see you guys next week for our next patron episode or tomorrow or the next few days for it.
So this episode, though, as we talked about in the question, thank you, Sir Shamik C, for the question. This episode is about Danny's ninth chapter in A Game of Thrones, which is a chapter that has a lot to do with resurrection and the cost of death and the cost of life and the exchanges that we make at the moral and metaphysical level. So I'm very excited to talk about this with you two, you gentlemen, you ladies. So it's going to be a lot of fun to do this. And here it. So here is the synopsis for A Game of Thrones, Daenerys 9. Which, by the way, is not George's 1982 vampire novel that we will be doing a future Patreon podcast on. <clears throat> you don't want to wake the dragon, do you? Bear this phrase in mind because it's going to be unprophetically repeated a lot in this chapter. Danny walks down the long hall of the House of the Undying. No, wait, scratch that. The long hall of her dream, unable and unwilling to look behind her because if she looks back, she is lost. Ahead, the red door looms, distant, and Danny walks fast towards it, her feet leaving bloody footprints on the stone below. You don't want to wake the dragon, do you? Danny's vision focuses on sunlight spreading over the Dothraki Sea as wind and the smells of earth and death envelop her. Drogo holds her and then engages in some finger action down south as, star as stars smile down on them. Then Drogo and Danny bone under the stars, but then the stars are gone and the great wings sweep across the sky, turning the world to flame don't want to wake the dragon, do you? Then Jorah, who I hate, by the way, shows up talking about Rhaegar as the last dragon. His quote, translucent, which is an interesting turn of phrase, hands warm over a glowing brazier and Danny's dragon eggs turn red as coals. Then he fades. Thankfully, thankfully, get out of here. His flesh going colorless. Jorah whispers about the last dragon again and the red door seems far away. Don't want to wake the dragon, do you? Viserys is there next, calling Danny a slut and referring to himself as a very brave dragon who will be crowned. And then the molten gold melts down his face, burning his skin, blackening his cheeks. Don't want to wake the dragon. And now the red door is far away and an icy breath blows up from behind Danny. She knows she'll die if it catches her, so she runs. Don't want to wake the dragon. A heat burns inside of her and she sees Rago as an adult, copper skin with Targaryen silver gold hair and violet eyes. Her son smiles at her, lifting his hand towards her, but then fire pours from his mouth and chest, and he's gone. Danny weeps for Danny weeps for Rago, but her tears turn to steam when they fell on her hot skin. Want to wake the dragon? Get it, guys, because dragons are fire made flesh. I'm just I'm sorry for repeating this so many times. I, I think it's a lot of fun, first off, but there's a lot of like imagery here that might be signaling something about these dragons that's about to happen in the books. I don't know. We'll see. Then there's a shitload of ghosts in the hallways, silver and gold haired, platinum white with opal and amethyst, tourmaline and jade eyes. They tell her to go faster, faster, faster. A spasm of pain rips down Danny's back and she smells burning blood and sees more shadow wings and Daenerys Targaryen flew. Wake the dragon. The red door was close now, the hall blurring around her, the cold breath of death falling back, and Danny was flying high across the Dothraki Sea. She smells home, and just beyond the Dothraki Sea was the house of the red door. She arrives at that red door, throws it open, and the dragon. She sees Rhaegar mounted on a black stallion with black armor. Fire licks out from the eyes slit of his armor. Jorah shows back up. Get lost, Jorah. Get the fuck out of here. Why are you back? Whispering about Rhaegar being the last, the last, the last dragon. Danny throws back the visor of Rhaegar's black armor, and in a scene ripped straight from the Empire Strikes Back, she finds her own face inside the armor. And then it was only the pain, fire inside, and the, quote, whispering of stars. Danny wakes to the taste of ashes, a tent in Jiqui. She remembers flying in her dream, but now she's exhausted and barely conscious. She asks Jiqui to bring her something, but she can't remember what that thing is. 
They find Danny crawling towards her dragon eggs. Jorah, they find Danny crawling towards her dragon eggs. Jorah picks her up and puts her back into her sleeping silks. And Miri Mazdor brings her some drugs to help her sleep. Her sleep is dream. Her sleep is dreamless, and she floats peaceful on a black sea that knew no shore. When Danny wakes again, she's unsure of how much time has passed. She calls for her handmaids and asks for water, saying that she's been sick. She also inquires about how long she's been out. Well, it's been a minute, Danny, and she still wants to hold the uh um the 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 thing, you know, the thing. You guys, just come on, help me out here. The 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 dragon eggs. Yes, she wants to hold the dragon eggs, but then she passes out again. She wakes again, holding the cream-colored egg of future Viserian fame, and Danny sweats, calling it "quote dragon two, which is. It's a weird turn of phrase, George. But as Danny traces her fingers across the egg, she feels something twist and stretch inside the egg, and she ain't scared of it. She asks for the coldest water her handmaids can find and for some dates, too. The fruit kind, that is. And then uh, she asks for Sir Jorah. He's coming back. Mary Mazdor, who is also coming back, and a warm bath. Oh, and one small minor matter. How's that Khal Drogo doing? He's alive or something? Um, yeah, sure, kind of. We, we should chit about that one, Danny, but but not as handmaids. Oh, no, no, that's that's a test for Sir Jorah. But just before Jiqui can duck out, Danny catches her hand and asks what's up with Drogo and her child, Rago. What's up with them? Danny wants Rago. Her handmaid lowered her eyes. The boy. He did not live, Khaleesi. Danny releases Jiqui's wrist. My son is dead. But somehow Danny already knew. She knew when she woke for the first time. Hell, she knew before that when she saw Rago burst into flame in her dream. She should weep, she knew, yet her eyes were dry as ash. She had wept in her dream, and the tears had turned to steam on her cheeks. All the grief had been burned out of me. She felt sad, and yet she could feel Rago receding from her as if he had never been. Well, we are now very sad, Danny. Thank you very much, Rip Rago. Jorah and Miriam Mazdor arrive in the tent to find Danny standing over her two other dragon eggs, Danny thinks the dragon eggs feel hot, which, hmm, it's such a mystery what's going to happen with those dragon eggs, huh? She asks Jorah to feel the eggs and tells her that if she if they feel any and asks him if he feels any heat in them. But he doesn't. But uh hey Danny, are you, you know, feeling okay? Maybe you should go take an aspirin and lie back down. But no, Danny is strong now, not weak. She props herself up on cushions to demonstrate her strength and asks Jorah how Rago died. He never lived, my princess. Danny wants to know more, but Jorah is, well, Reluctant. Talking about the child was, uh, he was, um, uh, monstrous, Mary Mazdor says. She ain't reluctant. The knight was a powerful man, yet Danny understood in that moment that the Meiji was stronger and crueler and infinitely more dangerous. Mary adopts a further bedside manner and tells Danny that Rago was twisted, scaled like a lizard, blind and had a stub of a tail. Also, his flesh sloughed off the bone when he touched it, and he was full of grave worms. He had been dead for years. You know, Miri Mazdor, I think your bedside manner needs a little work because it sucks. Wow, really sucks. Danny thinks back to the darkness that was trying to eat her in her dreams, and she points out that Rego was alive and kicking quite literally when Jorah brought Danny into Miri Mazdor's tent. But Miri's all like, yeah, whatever, the child was dead. There was death in the tent. There was death in the tent. Miri had said as much. But Jorah puts in that he only saw shadows in the tent and Miri dancing alone. But Danny hears the doubt in Jorah's voice. The grave casts long shadows, Iron Lord, Miri said, long and dark, and in the end, no light can hold them back. Again with the bedside manner, but Danny knows why Jorah has been having a hard time talking about what happened. He sort of killed Rago. He had brought Danny and Rago into Mirima's door's tent, after all. The shadows have touched Jorah, too, as Jorah looks a little kind of gray and ashy. 
Danny turns to Mary Ma's door. You warned me that only death could pay for life. I thought you meant the horse. Nope. That was a lie that Danny had told herself or something, Mary Mazdor says. And look, you know, Mary, I'm not wholly unsympathetic to your viewpoint, as we're going to talk about here. But the deed is done at this point. You're basically spiking the football or doing a touchdown dance to the graves of dead men and a child. And that kind of sucks. You kind of suck. Danny's mystified by it all anyways. Had she? Had she? If I, am look back, if I look back, I am lost. The price was paid. The horse, my child, Quaro and Kotho, Hago and Koholo. The price was paid and paid and paid. Danny rose from her cushions. Where is Caldrogo? Show him to me, Godswai, Meiji, Blood Mage, whatever you are. Show me, Caldrogo. Show me what I bought with my son's life. Danny is hot, and she has every right to be hot. Mary Mazur says, yeah, sure, I'll take Danny to Drogo, but Jora tries to caution her against moving, but Danny is quite determined. The sun blinds her as she emerges from the tent, searing the land around her. Danny's handmaids and Jora help her get across the desert and on to Drogo. Around her, everyone is gone, with only the old, lame, sick, and very young left behind, about 100 Dothraki or so. That's the Dothraki way of life. Danny asks after Aroe, the Lazarine girl she had saved from the Dothraki. Uh, yes, about her. Mago, who is now Jaco's blood rider, seized her, raped her, and gave her to six other blood riders. Then they cut her throat at the end of it. Ago unhelpfully puts in that this was her fate. If I look back, I am lost. It was a cruel fate, Danny said, yet not so cruel as Magos will be. I promise you that, by the old gods and the new, by the lamb god and the horse god and every god that lives, I swear by the mother of mountains and the womb of the world, before I am done with them, Mago and Kojeka will plead for the mercy they showed to Roe. Danny's handmaid, handmaids look at her, perplexed, and tell her that Jaco is called now. And Danny says, oh yeah, well, I'm a motherfucking Targaryen who descends from Aegon the Conqueror and Maegor the Cruel of Old Valyria. I am the daughter of dragons, and those fools are going to die like chumps if I say so. They then proceed on to Khal Drogo and find him alive. Sort of. Blood flies crawl all over him, and Danny realizes after trying to talk to him that he's blind and deaf. He just likes being out in the warm sun. And he'll walk and eat and drink a bit, but it ain't going to be like it used to. Your spells are costly, Meiji, Danny says. Well, to Mary Ma's story, it ain't exactly her fault that Danny failed to read the fine print. Danny asked for life, and she got it. What more could she want? Well, Mary Ma's story, maybe, like, you know, not being a blind, deaf husk for one. When will Drogo return as he actually was? Well, Mary's got a hell of an answer to that question. When the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. When the seas go dry and mountains blow and the wind like leaves. When your womb quickens again and you bear a living child. Then he will return, and not before. Danny tells Jorah and the rest to get the fuck out of here. She needs to talk with Mary Mazdor alone. And now alone, Danny turns to her. You knew. You knew what I was buying, and yet you knew the price, and you let me pay for it. It was wrong of them to burn my temple, the heavy, flat-nosed woman said placidly. That angered the great shepherd. Well, to Danny, this ain't the work of the divine. It's Mary Mazdor's work. She cheated. She murdered. The stallion who mounts the world will burn no cities now. His Kalasar will trample no. His Kalasar shall trample no nations to the dust. Mary Mazdor retorts. But Danny spoke for Mary. She saved her. Oh, but did Danny actually do that? The reality, as Mary Mazdor points out, is that she was raped four times before Danny had the chance to pass by. And Dothraki, they burn her home, her temple. They murdered a kid she had just saved from fever three months before. And then there was that pile of heads on the streets. Tell me again what you saved, Khaleesi. Your life, Danny replies. Miri Mazdor laughed cruelly. Look at your cowl and see what life is worth when all the rest is gone. 
I love how George points out that Miri Mustard is laughing cruelly at Daenerys. Again, it's not that I'm unsympathetic to Miri's viewpoint, but what's the goddamn point about being a jerk about it all? Stop touchdown dancing, bat flipping Miri Mustard. Well, Danny calls her cause to come find Miri Mustard hand and foot, and Miri Mustard gives Danny a shit itty grit as they bear her away, quote, as if they shared a secret. Danny wonders if she should order Miri Mustard beheaded, but what would she exactly gain from that? If life was worthless, what was death? Kyle Drucker was then led back to Danny's tent, and Danny has him put into the tub. She bathes him, and thankfully there's no blood, pus, shit, or death that flows into the water. But by the time she's done, it's late night, and Danny is dead tired. She thinks sleep might be a relief, but she's slept too long already. So Danny leads Drogo out into the night and darkness, for the Dothraki believe that all things of importance in a man's life must be done beneath the open sky. Hold on to your butts here because we're about to get into some seriously sad, sad shit. Danny tries telling herself that there are things more powerful than hate and better spells than Miri Mazdor knew from Ashai. The night was black and moonless, but the night sky burst into a million... That's interesting. The night was black and moonless, but the night sky burst into a million stars. Unlike the Dothraki Sea, though, this ground is hard, dusty, bare, and stony. There is no, wa- there is no trees, no waters around. Danny hopes that the stars will be enough. Remember, Drogo, she whispered. Remember our first ride together, the day we wed. Remember the night we made Rago with the Kalasar all around us and your eyes on my face. Remember how cool and clean the water was in the womb of the world. Remember, my son and stars. Remember and come back to me. Danny can't have sex with Drogo just now, as she had had back on the Dothraki Sea with him. Her body was too brawl and torn. But Danny remembers what Doria had taught her, and she tries using her hands, mua, <laughs> and she tries using her hands, mouth, and boobs to get Drogo to rise, literally and figuratively. And by the end, she only has her tears. Yet Drogo did not feel, or speak, or rise. A bleak dawn rises, and Danny knew that Drogo was gone. She repeats Miri Mazdor's sarcastic reference to the sun rising in the west, and the darkness answers her: "Never, never, never." Danny finds a cushion in her tent, soft and full of feathers. She holds it tight to her body and walks back out to Drogo. If I look back, I am lost. It hurt even to walk, and she wanted to sleep. To sleep, and not to dream. Danny kneels in front of Drogo, kisses him, kisses him one last time on the lips, and presses the cushion down on Drogo's face. And that is a Game of Thrones Daenerys 9. Well, we've run the full gamut of storytelling here, haven't we? We've started with the magical trippy dreams, Mary Mazdor being a dick, and then full-on pathos at the end. I am sad just rereading this chapter and writing this synopsis now when I was writing it a few days ago. And it's in this bleak ending to a dark, disturbing chapter that first-time readers would be forgiven and thinking that, you know, this is the end for Danny. But again, George and Annihilist here, thankfully. And yet, in George's not being a nihilist, that doesn't mean we're about to experience one of the most absolutely mind-bending magical beats in the story so far in Danny's final Game of Thrones chapter. It's all congruent, wonderful, amazing storytelling in George's part that will close the Game of Thrones out on a bang. But in George's world, triumph can only come after utter fucking tragedy. What did you guys think about this chapter? Even in the whirlwind rush at the end of a Game of Thrones that we've been covering, this chapter is really something special. And... It's honestly intimidating to try and get my head around it. It's less easily summarized than Danny 8, the blood magic one, or Danny 10, the dragon one, but it's arguably more philosophically ambitious than either one. It's not just that Danny 9 does many things well, it's that it does many very different things well. It starts with one of George's most vivid dream sequences, shifts into a more grounded tone upon Danny waking, while still following up on the freaky imagery with Rago's birth, features some incredibly well-written dialogue and internal monologue, 
and ends, as you say, with one of the bleakest and saddest moments in the whole story. What ties it all together for me is the sense of Danny having irrevocably joined this transformative world of fire and blood. She sees so many pathways opening and closing in this chapter for her and hers, and she feels these primal forces of life and death and creation and destruction tugging her back and forth. She's becoming a mythical figure at this point, the mother of dragons that she'll evolve into fully at the end of this book and then over the books to come. And while there is definitely a divine glory to that, as we'll see at the end of her final chapter, as you say, it's not purely bleak and nihilistic at the end for Danny, but this chapter specifically is much more about leaving humanity behind. What did you think of it, Eliana? Yeah, I mean, speaking of that divine glory, amen, brother, regarding Danny (laughs) being caught between these primal forces, which are, as you said, they're tugging at her. But I think part of what makes Daenerys so compelling is that these ideas that ought to be contradictions don't necessarily always fight within her. They all coexist and Hmm. are there within her at the same time. She's large. I mean, she contains multitudes, right? She's a mother of dragons, yes, but she's also the crone branded for the Dosh Kaleen. Eventually, you know, whenever someone drags her there, which is probably coming in wins. And of course, as she repeats over and over again, I am but a young girl. And as this mother, she, of course, brings life in terms of dragons, and she tried to buy life for the slaves. She tried once more, right, for for Khal Drogo, but at the same time, she's marching them towards death. She has to smother Drogo, and smothering is very much indicative of that, that Jungian shadow of the mother archetype, because, you know, we're going to talk about Jung and Freud. Like, right now, we're going to talk, get Freudian and get weird <laughs> for a moment, because you discussed last episode with Nicole, the womb-like imagery within Sansa's chapter, and this idea with a mother of dragons is prevalent throughout Danny's storyline, like as we are venturing into the realm of the uncanny. Like, we have the womb of the world, the earth as the original womb from which comes forth life, but to which we return when we die, which if... I mean, we all watch season 8, I guess that's Danny's end, right? And for Danny, like, Rago has been kicking in her womb just days ago, yet the language is that he had been dead for years. Her womb also has those grave worms. And so as she enters the story, Daenerys is also the Daenerys, that silver coin, you know, mm. that, that echoes throughout her storyline. It echoes throughout all of A Song of Voice and Fire. You knew the price. And she, it, she bought the Dothraki loyalty to an extent, and then she didn't. And, you know, a coin, it's it's at once one thing with many sides, as Daenerys is. It is all whole within one. And the chapter, this chapter, is that first half of, I think, the closing of the first story act. This is that, to use a term from Kim, whom you had on uh, a few episodes ago, and who also has a book coming out uh, on <laughs> uh, a guide Yay. on Game of Thrones. Like, you discuss this trope of kill the parents first this is that inciting event within danny's and the story's five art storyline this is her ned stark dying and it closes the exposition hmm. for her story and for many of the other characters that are introduced in the game of thrones that's happening all at the same time and with that idea of sacrifice self or otherwise the costliness of of what is the price that you're willing to pay for anything that comes to the forefront of the story and sets the stage for many characters, like for things like the red wedding, etc. or, or uh, Stannis. Stannis. <laughs> ding, ding. I, I'm, on the, I'm on the cast, right? This is it. I did. Did I do it? Did I you're just it? checking off all the boxes. We don't even have to keep going. I know. I think we have a, a complete episode right there. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you know, Eliana, one of the first things I ever read of yours uh, was this essay you wrote back in 2013 
the one that you referenced, which is the value of silver coin, the value of silver, queens and coins, or how Daenerys' story resembles her name's origins. And in the document itself, I pasted a uh, a, a little picture that I actually upvoted back in 2013 on the subreddit itself. So I really enjoyed that essay of yours. It so is it's excellent. Six years, Christ. Almost six years ago now, right? Yeah, I was in my twenties when that when you really each other? Yeah. Okay. And we're only just fading now into my I'm getting. I'm more than halfway towards my forties now. Great. In that essay, though, you talked about one of the aspects that George is that George explores in the Coin Imagery for Danny is her moral exchanges. Right, she trades what she thinks is the life of Drogo's horse for Drogo's life in Danny Eight, and in this chapter, Miri Mazdor is here to point out what precisely Danny saves. What was it that Miri Mazdor exchanged for her life, and what was the and was that exchange worth it for her? You know, no doubt, like Miri Mazdor is this cruel, evil kind of bitch to Danny in this chapter, end zone dancing and all, but she does have something of a point. You know, she's willing to exchange. Mary Mazdor is willing to ex- engage in a little bit of her own exchange, her life, her honor, her doctorly ethics, if you want to call it that, all for the, quote, greater good of preventing the stallion who fucks the world from being born. It's a bleak fucking chapter, but this chapter is one of those chapters that makes me question morals and ethics and wonder who and what is ultimately right. Remember Revenge of the Sith? Ding! Opening scroll. There are heroes on both sides. Well, here in this chapter, I'm not saying that Mary Mazdor is a hero. I'm also not saying that Danny is a hero yet. But to have two competing, certainly compelling sets of morality occupying page space is quite brilliant. Even now, in 2019, after rereading these books numerous times now and rereading this chapter about a half dozen times before coming on air, I still don't know who is exactly, whether what Miri Mazdor was correct morally, ethically, in terms of the long term. Now, I do think George has certain sympathies, though, and that could be found most in the long disturbing sequence, in the long disturbing dream sequence, which opens this chapter. I completely agree with both of what you were saying there. Uh, I love the idea you had, Aliana, about this being the equivalent of Ned's execution, because, yeah, coming off Sansa 6, you do see a lot of themes in common of this this safe bubble bursting and you being left with the wreckage of it and the wreckage of your dreams and your stories and you're just kind of trying to capture that and as jeff said that's really captured in the dream sequence and on this reread i think this might be my favorite dream sequence in book one even more than brand's flight or ned's tower of joy flashback and like i was saying about danny nine as a whole it does several very different things well the imagery comes in this just furious montage that outdoes brand three for sheer abstraction but there is a clear, rigid structure to what Danny's undergoing, as you were you were saying. She's she's chasing the red door, this impossible, ever-receding vision of home that haunts her throughout her story, and that's going to turn to ashes in her hands. And she's being chased by this this cold wind and this cold howling, which obviously represents the others at some level, but also what they embody, which is, is given credence by season eight: loneliness and death, and a fate worse than death, as she puts it, erasure. The the same way they occupy that space in Jamie's dream sequence in the Storm of Swords, where the his his previous Kingsguard brothers and Rhaegar's ghosts kind of represent the others, but also get at the larger themes that the others represent. And in this case, the ghosts that Danny has are her family, I guess. Like the, those ghosts with the the purple eyes and the swords. Like those could be Targaryens. They could be Valyrians, more broadly speaking. They could be the Great Empire of the Dawn. But more generally, they're just like that archetype, that that kind of presence of, of hero and destiny that Danny is wrestling with here. And they're cheering her on faster, faster, faster. And she's running to the red door. But, you know, what they want from her for her isn't home. You get the sense. That's really not what these ghosts care about. They want her to become a dragon. That's what they're urging her on to do, for those wings to burst forth. Just like her father, just like what he was talking about that Jamie hints at in Harrenhal and the Storm of Swords to be reborn from the ashes as a literal, not a metaphorical dragon. And dragons 
plant no trees. They have no home. So if Danny is going to join this order that's urging her on, she's going to sacrifice what she thinks the Red Door means on behalf of what we might think it actually means, especially in the wake of season eight. And you see that same arc in the individual visions as they come one by one. You have, you know, the heartbreaking second one, I think, where it's it's Drogo and the Dothraki see in the sense of life and death and the, you know, renewable cycle and a home and a child, but then it all gives way to the fire. And then you have, like, that horrible one of Viserys dying and just, like, his eyes running, like, jellied on his cheeks and he's proclaiming himself the dragon. I am the dragon and I will be crowned. And, you know, we know how that ended, of course. Yeah, you know, this isn't the first time Viserys has appeared in one of Danny's dreams. We have, in her first, very first dream, we have the same sort of imagery being associated here. And obviously here, this is a callback to Viserys' fate, as did, as we found out in Daenerys 5. But I also kind of wonder whether Viserys, with the fire consuming him, has a kind of a deeper meaning for Danny. And in, in, in terms of its thematic and in, in terms of its thematics and symbolism, as in order to show Danny of what she is in danger of becoming if she embraces the dragon, embraces fire. And in Danny's vision quest in her final Dance of Dragons chapter, she chooses fire and blood with Viserys. We can get another cameo appearance in one of her visions. Uh, hmm, George. Hmm. I've seen season eight of the, of the Throne show. I, I kind of know where this is kind of going. But, you know, it's one of those things that I do think that it's 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 interesting because a lot of people have been like, there's not a, like a, enough foreshadowing or groundwork for Danny to go like super dark and blow up King's Landing. But I think that George is doing at least a better job so far in the first five books of showing that groundwork there. And the reason why I think he's doing a really good job at it is that the show decided to not showcase a lot of the dream and vision sequences, which help illuminate some of Danny's state of mind and some of the things that she's experiencing at a subconscious level. And in not showcasing that subconscious that Danny has, they do kind of strip away some of the foundation for her nuking King's Landing with her dragons. I think that's perfectly fair. I think there's 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 set up for it in terms of imagery and prophecy, but then there's set up for it in terms of character motivation. And it's going to require Danny to reverse on several things she's said before and several things she's tried to uphold. But as we've talked about in the past, there is evidence that she's going to probably go back on something like, am I going to turn Pantos over to the Tattered Prince? Given what Barristan has done with that information, it seems likely that George is building up to a reversal of that. And it's a question about making that reversal believable, but also... Uh, tragic and and emotional and I think you can see George going for that in these dream sequences when you have Jorah not like even dying horribly but just like fading into mist there's something so kind of haunting and and ethereal about that and he's just talking about the last dragon not not to make you feel sorry for Jorah because as <laughs> Jeff may have made clear in his synopsis we don't <laughs> but because Jorah as we're going to see in like Danny's first chapter in Clash when he's talking about Lynesse represents a kind of brutal takedown of, of chivalric happily ever after dreams so him talking about the last dragon fading away is is a, a strong sense of that stuff fading away for Danny, and I think it's we're going to obviously get more into that as we go through this episode. But I think the overall tone of that is going to be very sad. You're going to sympathize for her even as she does terrible things, maybe even especially as she does terrible things, given what George likes to do emotionally in moments like that. Yeah, absolutely. And the cool thing about Jorah is that he also starts making cameo appearances in Danny's visions. And also that whole idea of Jorah telling Daenerys that Rhaegar was the last dragon, it does get a bit of a, it does get several beat repeats come A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords, particularly with Jorah saying that Danny has more Rhaegar than Viserys in her, and in A Clash of Kings in her second chapter. Then in Storm, Danny 4, Jorah tells Danny that he views her as, quote, Rhaegar's sister. 
And then of course you also have Jorah in Danny's final vision. That's her telling her that her war is in Westeros to an abandoned marine and leave it to the and leave it to the great masters. So there's a little bit of ambiguity that George puts in Jorah Mormont showing up in Danny's dreams. And I do really enjoy that kind of image of that translucent hand that that Jorah has, like that kind of ghost hand. And I do wonder what that is supposed to symbolize ultimately for what Jorah represents for Danny, both presently in the story and what he represents for the future of her story. Yeah, I'm not really sure what it means for Jorah's story at large, but within this vision, you have Jorah disappearing, you have Drogo disappearing in Viserys, and eventually, same with Rago. And I think each of these represents some form of family to Daenerys, even if it's not necessarily loving, right? Even if it's complex and toxic and terrible, they're still family, and I think that's something that's very difficult, right, within the Targaryen family and storyline because, after all, for her, I think coming back to that idea of conflicting ideas coexisting, it's a manifestation of that idea that Jojen says if ice can burn, then love and hate can mate. But as each one of those people disappears, Danny is left more and more alone, not only as just the last dragon, but what it truly means to be the last. That means being alone. And what is the price of that? Like, we're probably going to see her pushing people who are family away, right? And because family can sometimes mean death, as we've seen with, like, the Dance of the Dragons in A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, I think you really see that with the structure of this dream, not just with the imagery, but also the the gradual reduction of the the sentence that is the mantra, the waking the dragon mantra that we've seen from the very beginning with Danny when it just belonged to Viserys and represented how her dragon identity was kind of this prison for her in a lot of ways and this inflicted and projected upon her by Viserys. And now this dream is in large part about her taking charge of it in a way and making that her own foundation and her own, you know, uh, mantra she's going to act upon as we're going to see in Danny 10 but there is that ambiguity about whether this is actually a good thing or not the fact that it's going from a warning to a demand and a demand you know that seems to be pulsing through her blood to a certain extent given that her ancestors show up and you know it's it's an arc of empowerment and escape on one level especially as regards of Viserys that he's not around to abuse her anymore and that she showed him up a couple times before he died but there's also a sense of just real corruption and death and just the actual transformation of her wings bursting out of her back. Like, it sounds really kind of horrifying. And of course, she's leaving bloody footprints behind, which we talked a little bit about in Danny 8, is a pretty blunt symbol and not necessarily a good one. Yeah, you know, it's it's all in context of that red door, which is what she considers her home. Of course, that red door being a Bravos too. And it's when she starts out her vision, she is far from home and she's leaving bloody footprints as the cold breath of the others is following her as she's progressing in her sequence. But by the time she's near home, near the red door itself, the stone is melting underneath of her bloody footprints itself. So again, it's not, again, as, as you were talking with uh, Michael about on, on Twitter, you know, some of the symbolism here is not necessarily as uh, complex and ambiguous as, you know, some people like to make a song of ice and fire out to be. So what does the bloody footprints represent? Obviously, I think it's very pretty clear to me that the bloody it's that the bloody footprints represent Danny's bloody pathway to get quote home. But by the time she actually arrives at home, whether it's the Red Keep or Dragonstone or maybe even Pentos as well, it's Aegon the Conqueror at Heron Hall imagery of him melting the stone of Heron Hall all over again. And uh, again, I, I saw season eight of Game of Thrones, so I know what's the ultimate fate of Daenerys Targaryen. But I am very curious and very interested in the pathway that George is showing to get to that end state. I think it's much more complex and much more satisfying. 
So what you're saying is the bloody footprints don't foreshadow a sequel to the bloody hand play in the Ooh. Mercy chapter. <laughs> you know that's going to be the entirety of the Winds of Winter. Just, is, just the bloody the story of the bloody hands, the bloody feet, <laughs> the bloody hands and the bloody feet. The bloody cinematic universe. I love it. But yeah, it's absolutely what you were saying about you know she's she's got this path of blood behind her and you know coming back to that that idea of like the hallway is hemming her in right it, it's a prison and it's an arc of empowerment and escape but at the same time in her ancestors or whoever the hell those people in the hall yelling faster are um they're kind of trying to force Daenerys into a destiny and somehow that destiny of what should be empowerment and escape continues to be its own prison and she's losing in, in that blood it's not just bloody footprints who else's blood is it it's hers she's paving it through her own pain as well yeah she's always wrapped up in the sacrifices they're always in part a sacrifice of her even when other people are involved as we've seen so far with the blood magic at the end of this book and you know at the end she makes it through the door so if you follow that arc of waking the dragon what she sees when she wakes up is was what's left once once the red door is complete and everything is just ash and dust and the big pillars of her life and the, her society she was trying to form have faded in the morning light. And it's a lot like Bran early on in the book. That the, you know, the dream promises you you can fly, but when you wake up, you, you can't, and you're powerless, and you're alone, and everyone left you in, in, while you were asleep, just like with Bran. And the, the Kalasar has fragmented and fled again, as we've said before, like Westeros post-Robert. Everyone is just kind of going their own way with their own new leader. And it's, it's just so heartbreaking that she senses that Rhaegar was gone. Before being told, like, obviously, when she wakes up, she's disoriented. She doesn't really know what's happened, happening or how long it's been. But she also doesn't ask for him right away because at some level she knows that she reaches instead for her eggs. They find her crawling toward her eggs because she knows that they're her children now at this point. They're her lifeboat in this mess. They're the foundation she can have a future with. And she's got this this fear now running through her dreams of being caught howling and alone in the cold darkness and having no future. And the eggs... The eggs are this way she can make her past into a future. Like, they represent, you know, Valyrian and Targaryen identity, which is such a complex thing for her at this point, because it's kind of aspirational, it's tied to Viserys. But it's it's a past she can make into a future. And she senses, as she has in previous chapters in this book, that the eggs are the connection to those people in her dream, that her the destiny hammering loudly in her blood. She's had dreams about them and had weird visions. And, like, they've, as in this chapter, they've been hot to the touch when no one else feels that way about them. And she is kind of choosing them over the green fields and stone houses and arms to keep her warm that are in the dream sequence. She's, she feels like she's lost those, and the dragons will be the foundation for her attempt to find them once more. But she also knows at some level as we go through the series that they're going to destroy any chance she has of making that dream come true. Well, the thing, too, is about the eggs themselves and about them showcasing her identity about what she's about to become – they represent some good. Uh, obviously, we see that in something like Astapor, where she uses the dragons to liberate slaves in her campaign across Slaver's Bay to liberate slaves from their bondage and from their slavery. But at the same time, though, there's another component to that identity, something that is a bit more foreign, something potentially even monstrous about the eggs and about her dragon identity. All of her handmaids are just so afraid to tell her the truth because it's that horrifying. All of them are like, no, I don't get paid enough to tell you. I don't get paid anything. And I'm leaving. And poor Jiki's just like, fuck, I got stuck here. Everyone left me. And she's the one who has to try starting, try beginning to say, they say the child was, and, and 
Miri Mazdor is just like monstrous and she's proud of it. And I mean, that's a thing. Danny has birthed this monster and it's a recurring theme. It's a recurring motif throughout her story because she comes back to it in dance, right? And Danny too, at that horrifying moment when she realizes and has to reckon with what have I brought into the world? What has Drogon done in Marine, where she thinks to herself that I am the blood of the dragon. If they are monsters, so am I. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, Rago, as he's described, kind of visually looks like a dragon or a dragon baby. We've talked about that before in connection with Rhaenyra, like this kind of horrible fusion between the two, which may represent or stand in for general experimentations with blood magic and becoming transhuman on the Valyrian's part. But in this case, it just stands up, yeah, as, as kind of a display Miri Mazdur is making, like a reflection, like, this is who you truly are in the inside, Danny and Drogo. This is what your campaign actually looks like. You think of it as a glorious dragon in the wind or a dragon fluttering on a banner, but what your campaign looks like in practice is this monster, and as you say, she's kind of proud of it. And this is the chapter where you really see Miri Mazdur in the spotlight. We've talked about her, her the setup before as she encounters Danny and Drogo and her big blood magic show, but this is where you really get into what she's about and what she means for the narrative. And she's the anti-Drogo, basically. If you look at Drogo's big Conan speech in Danny 6 after the assassination attempt about how he's going to go take down Westeros and all the men in their stone houses, etc., and he's praising all the acts of conquest and more he will do for his wife and his son, and Miri Mazdur is here to deliver the, the opposite monologue about the costs of that, about what happened as soon as Danny tried to do that. And it's interesting that she's not coming at this from a perspective that, hey, all prophecies and your stallion and your Azor High stuff is BS. That's not really her view. Her, in her view, the forces of destiny do exist, but they're not designed to honor the stallions who would mount the world. They're designed to punish the would-be stallions who mount the world. The, the gods are on her side and taking horrible humans like that down. So she kind of acts as the in-universe avatar of every reader who's ever looked askance at Danny's rise to power in Essos <laughs> to a larger or great degree. And, like, she... She's kind of implying in her critique to Danny after she asked why she did this, that if, if being the ruler, a great historical figure, is Zora High Reborn, if this is what it looks like, then maybe we shouldn't have one of those. <laughs> and we've compared her to Melisandre before, but in this way, she's the opposite of Melisandre. Melisandre is all in on the messianic rise to power as the model and all in on the whatever she says the costs of doing so are. Miriam Azdur is telling both Danny and the reader that her people shouldn't be seen that way. as just collateral damage as a sad but necessary step on a protagonist's rise to power. It's the same sentiment that Davos expresses to Melisandre, if only in his thoughts in A Storm of Swords, where my son's no more than a lesson for a king then. That's what he thinks to himself when Melisandre says that, oh, the defeat on the Blackwater was just necessary to humble Stannis, so he'll, he sees the true way. That's his story arc. And Davos says, like, no, you can't use my people as background deaths to further your story arc. You can't fridge my entire family. <laughs> and that's what Miriam Mazdur is getting at here. Reminds me also of in, in, in Watchmen, when the, the horrible character, the comedian, is trying to leave Vietnam and everything he did there behind, and a woman comes up to ask what's going to happen to what's going to happen about the fact that he impregnated her and he completely dismisses her and she attacks him saying, you can't ignore us. You will remember me and my country forever. And I think that's what Miriam Mazdur is trying to get across to Danny and Drogo here, that you can't just bypass the Lazarine and pretend like my horrible experiences mean nothing. And that's what really makes her for me, the most interesting supporting character in Danny's story that she's striking to the core of Danny's character by first taking advantage of her individual good instincts. Like, oh, I'm going to save this person and that person, and maybe they'll help me out. And she's doing so to call attention to the fact that Danny's big picture actions are still pretty bad, despite those individually good instincts. And as, as you were saying, Danny's going to relate this to the dragons a lot as she goes forward. Her throne is built on burned bones, as she'll think to herself in dance. 
So Miri Mazdur is arguing not really that death pays for life, which is the kind of the front she made to Danny in her previous chapter, but that death pays for death. What goes around comes around for Drogo and for Danny. And did that justify what she did? It's you know, it's, it's easy to come into a cop out on this, but all of it is pretty ethically complex. What do you think about it, Eliana? Well, first, I'm going to pose a question to you, and maybe, maybe to the listeners, right? And you've kind of like touched on this question, but do the deaths of all of the people in Westeros, right? Do they just does the cause of Northern independence? Does the cause of getting the Iron Throne? Does the cause of Dornish independence, right? Does that all justify the people that they will have fight for them in their deaths? <laughs> I mean, it's a central question in, in A Song of Ice and Fire, right? Of Is the ultimate price of attaining your goals worth it? Worth it? Is is the juice worth, worth the squeeze, so to speak? And, you know, for coming at the at the end of season eight, is the all of the people that died taking King's Landing on, on Danny's side and all the people that died, the civilians who died there, was that worth taking out Cersei Lannister? And that's the question that George wants to think wants us to pose. I don't... I, in my in my opinion, I, I think that there are causes that are worth sacrificing for and sacrificing lives on behalf of. I think, uh, me, me personally, I, I think, for instance, that Northern Independence that there that it's a it's a just cause that Robert's Rebellion is similarly a just cause of overthrowing a tyrant. But at the same time, in A Song of Ice and Fire, those just causes often result in the deaths of lots of innocents, and you do kind of wonder whether you know Rob Stark taking his crown really had a net positive for the North or whether it was the ultimate downfall of the North with all of the terrible things happening with the Ironborn invading, the Boltons taking over and the phrase also murdering all sorts of people at the at the Red Wedding. Is that is is the juice worth the squeeze? That's the question that ultimately we want to ask here. And I think a lot of times the answer is no. I think there are some instances where it is yes with a big asterisk next next to it. Yeah, and I think that's part of what's keeps us in the story, right? Like, George poses many different answers or many different ways of exploring this exact same questions, and it's asking, is this okay? All right, now what about this one? And puts it in many different ways and, and questions why each of those is different, why we would weigh those differently. Regarding that idea of, as Emmett was saying, of how Miri seems to argue that death only pays for death, it's it's as though, yeah, she's buying into this idea that what washes out blood is more blood, and you kind of see that in this scene where Danny has Drogo bathed once more. Uh, it happened very recently. I mean, man, this guy's like getting <laughs> bathed quite a lot for someone out, out in the wilderness. But as opposed to last time where he was covered in dirt, this time the water runs clear as though his own blood has already washed out the blood and the sins of what he's done. And it, it washes out together with the destruction of the Colossar. And I think that it's not just a mirror of the political situation in Westeros at this moment upon the death of Robert. I think what you're seeing is also a mirror of what happens to Danny later on. You know, she's, she's willing to, for the price to be paid and paid again, right? For Drogo to come back. Uh, with the deaths of Quoro and Kotho, Hago, Koholo, Rago, they all have names just as Miri Mazdor points out. The baker was someone in her life, that child that she saved three moons ago, those mattered to her. And like her action, Danny's actions and her single-mindedness is what divides the Kalasar just as it will divide Westeros in her war against maybe Fagon, maybe Cersei, all, all of these different factions, right? 
so that she can fulfill this destiny that her that her ancestors tell her to. There's there's a lot of sunk cost fallacy like in the extreme going on here. But the Dothraki don't recognize her power as a Khaleesi, just as many in Westeros probably won't recognize her as a queen. But she lays them all down as payment anyway. She's going to be a little like Miri Mazdur, right? You brought up how Miri Mazdur is sacrificing her life and her ethics. We see in Marine Danny already dipping her toe in that, like, where am I willing to compromise my morals in order to achieve this goal? And she, in this chapter, lays a lot of that down, or sees what she gets when she lays a lot of that down as payment, and doing it anyway for the promise of love and a family with Drogo. And in her haste, in trying to take a shortcut, or in deciding to pursue this as Quentin decides to pursue what he thinks it means to be a hero, she loses all of it. I think that's a great point. I mean, Danny considers Miriam Mazdur her great nemesis in this chapter, but then she'll say only semi-ironically in her final chapter, I thank you, Miriam Mazdur, for the lessons you have taught me. Very similar to what Sansa says to Littlefinger in the show right before she orders his execution. And it's it's in part just a, a, a dig at an enemy before you kill them, but it's also... A reflection of how Danny does kind of go down the Miri Mazdur path to a certain extent in constantly making those trade-offs, those gigantic trade-offs in the name of trying to set the world right and then dealing with the, the backlash to it. Just as, you know, kind of on the other side of the uh, narrow sea, Robert, Robert's decision to try to assassinate her led to the very invasion he was fearing. You know, a lot of Danny's big attempts to change the world end up having huge, not just collateral damage as she does them, but backlashes that arguably overwhelm the good she managed to do in the first place. And so uh, Miri Mazdur is both this kind of antagonist figure for Danny at the end, but also a foil in interesting ways. And I think what she what she does to Danny, but also what she says to Danny, I think resonates in a lot of interesting ways going forward with her story. I, I think, too, there's something really interesting at work here. And it's something that George has talked about and how he views prophecy and that sometimes prophecy has this ability to be fulfilled despite people trying to work against it. So Miri Mazdor is aware of the stallion amounts of the world prophecy, as she makes clear in this chapter. She's aware of what Rego has been prophesied to do with all of Essos and trampling the trampling the ground and trampling the people into the dust. So she attempts to preempt that prophecy by having Rego killed. And what does she do instead? She creates this she creates the person in the form of Daenerys Targaryen who is going to trample all of these different tribes and different cities and Westeros into the ground under the hooves of her not horses in these in this case, but in the case of the dragons. And I think it's really interesting, as we talked about in Danny Seven, that Miri Mazdor ends up midwifing the dragons into existence by attempting to preempt the prophecy of the stallion amounts of the world. Yes, exactly. And I mean She's, she she plays a foil also to Melisandre, as you were saying, in that she stands against, to an extent, that idea of like paying the price of one life in, in order to get this larger thing. But at the same time, as you were saying, ends up with a similar ending, that same sort of irony that in trying to change fate only hastens it. And I think that's a big part of why you were discussing this idea of prophecy. That's a big idea. That's part of why prophecy is a sword without a hilt. People think that knowledge is power and knowing what's going to happen in the future is going to give them some sort of control over their fate. But as opposed to that, having knowledge of what happens in the future seems to only hem people in even more as they try to change what's happening instead of being truly free to do their own actions, which I think is part of like going on a slight tangent here of why Bran in the show 
kind of refuses some information from people and allowing them to make their own choices of what they do in their life. Like he presents information to John and he's like, it's your choice whether you tell people or not. Yeah, it's it's this great interplay between omniscience and intimacy that you have the motivations being very personal and oriented towards love and home. But the tools you're playing with turn you into someone for whom those are kind of abstractions and at a distance. And you know, the, the more you know, the less you're connected to it. And yeah, as you're saying, the, the prophecies kind of hem Danny in, make her more paranoid. House of the Undying arguably makes her less able to get it together as a leader than it does, you know, tell her where to go and who to trust. And it, just the, the wages of it are so thin when you get to the end that, you know, you get all this great buildup in the chapter about this arc from life passing into death and death only paying for death. And then you see Drogo and it all just kind of comes together. This is what the price was all for. This is the, the product Danny ends up with it. It's not even a, a glorious return to life of, of her beloved Drogo. It's not even that you, you paid a horrible price for this grand miracle. It's that you paid it for, for nothing. Uh, compared to what you you thought you were paying it for, and there's a, a real contrast in that to Danny Ten, where Danny does make the miracle happen. But I think it's important that uh, George leads into that with this, this statement about blood magic not working and being kind of a, a trap and a trick to expose your motives for going into it. And Miriam Mazdur is trying to draw this connection between what happened to Drogo and what happened to her and her people. That saying that you know this is not just a process of me being a freaky sorceress who's been to a shy. This is my equivalent of, of what happens politically every day under war machines like yours, that you have you have turned my entire people into Drogos, into Drogo as he is now, into into ghosts. This is what you've done to me. You took everything away from me, but you say you saved my life. Well, that's just as much as I gave Drogo. So think think about yourself and your arc and your attempts to do the right thing in that context. So they just kind of get washed away by this bigger picture she's bringing to bear. Yeah, and... As you were saying, the Dothraki end up creating what are civilizations of ghosts, and Miri Mazdur says as much to Danny, paraphrasing and cutting out a few lines. She says to her, "Look to your call and see what life is worth when all the rest is gone." And then later, as as Danny's pretty furious at this line, is just like, "What the fuck?" She's like, "A word, and Danny could have had her head off. Yet then, what would she have? A head? If life was worthless." What was death? And I think that's just such a poignant, like, two ideas that all come together. And I think this is one of the conceits, perhaps, of A Song of Ice and Fire, of what is life worth when all the rest is gone. Because Danny's chapter bookends the magic that's introduced in the prologue with a different manifestation of the undead of what is life worth. Because the whites, the ice whites, right? They're void of emotion. They have memories. They remember but they don't have the laughter, the tears, or life, things that Danny associates with who Drogo is. He's lost those aspects of himself. And we see that also with Lady Stoneheart and Beric. They're reduced to only one aspect of themselves. They are also losing their memory. Thoros, are you my mother? And of course, Catelyn and Stoneheart is another exploration of this, having lost her own husband and children, her family, or so she thinks. Turns out a lot of them are alive. Go figure. Um, irony, right? Uh... But Daenerys explores the story in a very different sense because she's searching for love and belonging and finds that the Westeros of her heart and mind, it never gets any closer, unlike the Red Door. It's, it's as you said, a trap, even as she stands upon that Westeros. And I love how in that line, Danny's thinking that she could have Miri's head off because she has 
power. She's going to have power in Westeros. What are is fire made flesh, if not power? But to what end? If she's alone, if the people that she loves are dead, if they're gone, if they're abandoning her, what is life worth when all the rest is gone? Yeah. And what does she see when she goes through the red door in this vision? She sees Rhaegar armored all in black with fire. And I love this this image of fire kind of licking out from his visor. And she opens the visor and she sees herself there. Fire made flesh is definitely the dragons, but it's also her too and what she represents and the power, the destructive power more than anything else of what the dragons can do. And we see this a lot in Targaryen history that, yes, the dragons were the the cudgel that the Targaryens used to maintain their grasp on power. At the same time, though, the cost of them keeping their power was the deaths of tens of thousands in Aegon's conquest, perhaps hundreds of thousands in all the ensuing wars that the Targaryens fought against themselves in the Dance of the Dragons, the Blackfire Rebellions, and on into Robert's Rebellion itself. Is that worth it? Is is it worth it that the the thing that is holding you in place, if you know, it, you know, in a modern context? Is it worth it that we can possess nuclear weapons that can destroy the world several times over, yet at the same time, they're the thing that kind of keeps the world from blowing to pieces, or at least it did back during the Cold War era, if you want to, if you end up embracing kind of the, the mad, uh, the mad theory of nuclear weapons. Is, is that, is that, is it worth it to have those dragons? Is it worth it to have weapons of destruction? Is your maintenance of power worth all of the consequences and all of the lives that it ends up ending? Is it worth it? I, I, I don't know. That relationship to power that you're both talking about is definitely at the core of what Miri Mazdur was trying to communicate to Danny, and will only get more and more important as we go through Danny's story. And that was comparing this chapter to the one we did previously with you, Eliana, and, and Daenerys too, when we had the, the first night together of Danny and Drogo, and this is such a bleak echo of that, in that what has really changed is the relationship to power that Danny has. She was scared then and she's scared now, but she was so powerless in Danny too, and she's come into her own. To a certain extent, you definitely root for a lot along the way, but that relationship is so complicated now. And you can see George working to set a, a foundation for Danny's story in which power is always available to her. And to, to some extent, in Karth, she gets showered with riches and she stays in the nicest house in the city. And in, in Storm of Swords, even when she's already begun her, her campaign against the slavers, they you know shower her with gifts to try to get her to go away. And she has plenty of allies and dance and she always has the dragons. But the cost of using all those tools gets darker and bloodier. Dance dwells on that all the time when it comes to how Astapor has fared in, in the wake of her actions there or what it means to give the shave pay power with his brazen beast given what he's always urging her on to do. In a sense, she never stops dancing with the devil. She never stops the kind of relationship she has with Miri Mazdur and she herself ends up as hollowed out as Drogo. Look at what you have when life is all you are and as, as Eliana said, you're just kind of lonely. And what keeps it so sympathetic is that loneliness, the relatable dream, home and family and her husband all under the stars like the night they conceived Rago. But in the end, when she can't have that, she is the one who has to deliver the killing blow at the end of this chapter. And that's, again, so intimate and so horrible. And as she says, she's just she's just left with death. And that's just so worth so little to her, like Ilaria Sand will say in Dance about Gregor's skull. It can't replace Oberyn it, it can't comfort her in the night it can't take care of her when she gets old and sick and all, all Danny but all Danny can do is promise I'm going to deal with Mago and Jaco all she can do is promise to to kind of keep that cycle going and I think uh speaking of uh, events like Mago and Jaco being taken down that brings us to our foreshadowing and groundwork for the episode the first big one obviously to talk about is the quote-unquote prophecy 
that Miri Mazdur delivers to Danny. Uh, when the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, when the seas go dry and mountains blow in the wind like leaves, when your womb quickens again and you bear a living child, then he will return and not before. So this is our first extended prophecy in the Song of Ice and Fire, and I think it does exemplify how George will handle this element going forward. On the one hand, as, as you can tell from my quotes, this might not even be an intentional prophecy. Miriam Mazdor might just be listing impossible things to be poetically cruel to Danny about hope, how, how hopeless it is to bring Drogo back. But on the other hand, through a certain lens, it is coming true, especially at the, at the end of A Dance with Dragons. You do see these elements coming together. The sun rises in the west and sets in the east could refer to Quentin Martell, the sun's son, as Quaithe calls him, setting out on his quest in the west and then dying in the east, even as Duran and Ariane keep rising in the west. Uh, the seas go dry. That could be the Dothraki Sea drying up that we see at the end of Dance, hinting at prophetic endgame as has been established about the Dothraki Sea dying, drying up in this book. And, of course, the mountains blowing in the wind like leaves. That would be the pyramids of Marine turning to floating ash, transformed into floating ash by Rhaegal and Viserion when they get loose. All that's left is Danny's womb quickening. You could argue about whether that's possible or not by the end of A Dance with Dragons, but if this all means it's supposed to be a legit prophecy of some kind, what does that mean in terms of Drogo, quote-unquote, returning, as is the object of this prophecy here? Is that referring to being reborn as Drogon? Is that referred to Danny joining him in the afterlife? How, Eliana, how do you think we should parse this? It's interesting that the interpretation you put here of the mountains blowing in the wind like leaves is the pyramids of marine. I've seen interpretations of that line actually referring to Gregor Clegane or the mountains. Sure, falling. that works just as well. It's just so funny that uh, things like this, right? People interpret them differently. I, I, I didn't come up with that. I saw it, I don't know, on the internet, right? <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, uh, for me, I I think I felt that Drogo returning has meant Danny joining him in the afterlife. I know that I saw someone do, once again on the internet, a nice in-depth analysis of Danny's scene in the House of the Undying in season two through the show, as opposed to the one in the books of, you know, as she crosses the wall and sees the afterlife, right, and and sees Drogo in the tent with her child, and that they are waiting there for him, for her. Yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely possible. That is referring to Danny embracing Drogo in the afterlife. I also think too, maybe part of the thematic symbolic underpinning of it is Danny embracing a Dothraki understanding of warfare and of conquest and what she's going to be doing come the winds of winter as is likely going to be happening with her kind of nuking her way across Essos and pulverizing all of her enemies one by one as she sets her way towards Westeros and towards the endgame itself. I think that is a, a possible interpretation too, that her that Drogo returning is her embracing Drogo's mentality. We also see too where Danny makes a, a similar Drogo type um, de declaration where Drogo in at the end of Danny Six at the end of her of her attempted poisoning talks about how he's going to bring down all of the stone houses that the that the that the horsemen have. He's going to rip them down and rape their women, destroy all of the all of Westeros, and he swears it by the mother mountains in the womb of the world. Well, here at the in this chapter itself, Danny makes a single a similar proclamation about Mago and Jaco, where it says. You know, I promise you by the old gods, the new, by the lamb god and the horse god and every god that lives, I swear it by the mother mountains in the womb of the world. Before I am done with them, Mago and Co. Jacob will plead for the mercy they showed to Roe. And, you know, it's it's interesting, right? Because at the end of A Dance with Dragons, who is the Kalisar that shows up to 
the Dothraki Sea to confront Daenerys Targaryen. Well, it's it's Mago and Jaco's Kalisar. Jaco's Kalisar in particular with Mago as his blood rider. So we could see Drogo returning in that way too and Danny bringing fire and blood to the Dothraki and she swears this vow here in A Game of Thrones and we're going to likely see the outcome of that being played out in The Winds of Winter as George has talked about Mago being a antagonist to Daenerys throughout her arc in The Winds of Winter. I also want to kind of push back a little on the interpretation of this as a prophecy and and question it right because technically it isn't given what as one it's kind of miri mazdur's like double middle fingers up throwing in the feet there too fuck you you stupid i don't know that, that's miri mazdur right i'm 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 censoring her but that's what that's what this is for her and i don't think it's wrong though for people to feel it's a prophecy because we discussed this a little in our episode uh, focused on prophecy. It might, it might not be the only one on Girls Gone Canon, but there's a m- way that this line is delivered that has a measure of that poetry and gravitas on Miriam Mazdor's part. They're delivered in a trachaic foot, which in poetry is stress on stress. There isn't a meter because, I mean, this isn't a fucking poem, right? As much as we call it a song of ice and fire. But that trochee is often used to denote witchy things in literature or, or in speech. And you'll recognize it from things like in Macbeth, where the witches go double, double, toil and trouble. But because they have a meter, it makes it feel sing-songy and thus sinister because of that. Whereas here... Again, it's not a perfect it's not a perfect um fit, but it has that sort of foot which makes it feel out of place and stands out like when the sun rises in the west and sets in and and so that I think imbues it with that sort of supernatural element, which is why it feels like a prophecy. But another thing I want to push back on is this idea that Danny's womb has quickened at the end of A Dance with Dragons because there's that term, right, that we as modern English speakers don't usually understand. I mean, who fucking says, oh, I felt her womb quicken, right? When you see someone who's pregnant down the street, like, I don't know, you've had two kids. Technically, your wife has had two kids. Jeff, did you ever use the term? Oh, wow. Wow, dear wife, I felt your womb quicken. Have you? Uh, of course, because, yes, <laughs> we course. we talk about the quickening all the time. There's there's so much quickening happening. <laughs> twice, twice in our case. Uh Okay, now it sounds lewd. Never mind. I regret asking this question. That sounds entirely. like a horror movie, The Quickening. <laughs> the Quickening. Somewhat, I mean, that's kind of what Alien is, right? Or one of the you Alien just blew movies. My mind. With the Quickening and then the bursting out of the. Anyway, that's what that is. But coming back to Miri's prophecy, it's when your womb quickens and you bear a living child. This is like a two part, two part question, right? That you got to answer and. Yes, Daenerys maybe gets her period, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the prophecy's been fulfilled or will be. Because what the definition is for quicken, since it's a it's an archaic definition, as it's an archaic word, is for a woman, it's to reach a stage in pregnancy when movements of the fetus can be felt, or of a fetus to begin to show signs of life, which is, again, that movement. So, like, Danny can, like, have her period, she could get pregnant, she could fucking miscarry, right, and be pregnant for a few weeks, but... That doesn't mean anything unless she feels movement that's still not quickening. And even if that happened, there's still that second part of the sentence where Danny has to bear a living child. And I mean, Danny could go through all the, those things, have her womb quicken, carry it up pregnancy to full term. But like if 
what she bears is stillborn. That's still not a fulfillment of Mary Mazdor's statement. But I've now now that I've gone through all this, I I would ask, would you consider then, even though it's like at the end of this whole thing, is bringing the dragons into the world considered? Bearing a living child is feeling the warmth of the eggs. Well, okay, so this, this this is fascinating because in this chapter itself, when Danny touches the egg, she feels something moving and like struggling and like kicking almost underneath of it, uh, underneath of the scales of the egg, and and she then turns to Jorah and is like, "To Jorah, can, can you, what do you feel when you touch the egg?" And she doesn't feel heat, and he doesn't feel heat or anything, but she is sensing the eggs quote-unquote quickening if we're going to use the archaic term and definition of it itself so i think it's really interesting i never put that together but that's that's fascinating that's that's awesome i'm here to pose points and then argue against myself you know whatever <laughs> you can do both sides you don't even need us that's perfect yeah i think that's, that's a great point about the, the dragons kind of taking over for for rego and for her ability to have children in general because part of what makes it so poignant as her story goes on that you have these two sides develop of the the mother figure and the more direct draconic figures that she thinks at this point in her story and as as clash starts that those two have come together in the form of the dragons that she maybe she's become cursed in some regard as to human children but that the dragons can replace them and also be a foundation for her identity as the last last dragon the last scion of house targaryen in a way that makes her a, a symbol of life and not of death that she can you know she can have the the happy kingdom full of smiling faces that she talks about in clash and she can make that happen with her dragons because the dragons are to her a symbol of life because she brought them forward but that's what makes it so devastating for her when they also become uh, symbols of death mm. and you know you have that that's that's what makes the dragons so useful as not just a weapon for danny although they certainly are that in a temptation to power but also as this kind of marker of her of her downfall how the dragons are seen and how she sees the dragons is a reflection of how she sees herself and her her interior state and uh, that uh, ties us nicely into our discussion section for the episode and we're going to be talking a lot here about uh, eliana's wonderful essay on, on daenerys because it, it ties strongly into this chapter and to the overall sense i think we get in this chapter as we've been alluding to about where danny is going that this chapter is a foundational one for establishing how Danny's arc is going to, to end when she gets to Westeros. Yeah, and the great thing about this discussion is that Eliana has a fantastic essay, which we've referenced at the beginning of this podcast itself, called Daughter of Death, which is a Shakespearean analysis of Daenerys Targaryen and all of the foreshadowing and groundwork that George embedded into her arc that is indicating some her likely essay in the books and the essay that we definitely saw in the show. And in this chapter itself, there's a couple great lines, which we what really wanted to bring Eliana on to talk specifically about, because these lines are very particular to a lot of the point, the great points that she makes in her essay. So the lines are, never the darkness cried. Never, never, never. Inside the tent, Danny found a cushion, soft silk stuffed with feathers. She clutched it to her breasts as she walked back out to Drogo to her sun and stars. If I look back, I am lost. It hurt even to walk, and she wanted to sleep, to sleep, and not to dream. She knelt, kissed Drogo on the lips, and pressed the cushion down across his face. So it's really, that that's one of those, the, the saddest moments and lines in The Song of Ice and Fire. I would say it's top five sad moments in the, in the story itself. But at the same time, it's likely speaking to more than simply just Khal Drogo's death. It's speaking potentially to Daenerys Targaryen's future death come the end of A Dream of Spring. What do you think about that? Yeah, so 
these lines struck me so much on a reread a few years ago and thank you Jeff for staying by my side for I don't know five six years now apparently (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to do this because it and we're going to tie this back to the dream sequence at the beginning of the chapter but as someone who together with Lauren whom you had on a few weeks ago is a an enormous fan of Shakespeare I took a course in college trying to fulfill I don't know some credit and I was like damn wait I love this part of why I loved it was because it was full of puns and that's actually what I'm all about that and stupid sex jokes but turns out there's actually a lot of heart and and complexity within Shakespeare's work too of course which is why it has such long-standing power and the lines in these three paragraphs right there's like three different references within it never the darkness cried never 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 in King Lear, one of Shakespeare's, of course, very famous tragedies, Lear comes out in like the last scene of the play, and he's clutching the body of his beloved daughter Cordelia, and he talks about the time when Cordelia will finally return, which is never, 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 right? And that is also another example of a trochaic foot. But here it's in the pentameter because this is actually in a meter because it's Shakespeare. And then after Danny finds the cushion, she thinks that she wanted to sleep, to sleep, and not to dream. And of course, this is a reference to within the famous Hamlet speech of to be or not to be, as Hamlet is ruminating upon suicide, thinking of ending his life. And Daenerys longs for that here, but she doesn't do it. Instead, she ends her lover's life, right? But the references to the line of devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, a there's the rub, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come. And Danny puts a slight twist on it right in her grief. We see her echoing Hamlet's words, but she doesn't want to dream because life has been very painful for her thus far, having lost her loved one. And then finally, of course, the method with which she kills Drogo, pressing a cushion down upon his face is a reference to another Shakespearean tragedy, Othello, in which he kills his lover by smothering a pillow upon Desdemona's face. So I felt that George might have been trying to say (laughs) something when I saw these lines. I was like, that's weird. That's a weird thing to reference these three tragedies here. And it's at the beginning of her story. And I was like, "It, it feels weird for it to only pretend this very moment that's about to happen but it's occurring right at the end of this exposition act one and for me i thought that it might be looking at something in terms of danny's arc not as a messianic figure per se which you know of course she has shades of that but rather as being a shakespearean tragic hero and there are scholars many scholars such as ac bradley who discuss Shakespeare and A.C. Bradley has written a one of the seminal pieces on what a Shakespearean tragedy entails in uh in a piece called Shakespearean tragedy because I mean let's just call <laughs> things what they are right that's what he talks about and he says that the tragedy is essentially about human actions producing exceptional calamity and ending in the death of such a man in high estate the what makes 
tragedy so compelling he talks about is that there's an outward conflict of persons and groups, but of course there's one within the hero's soul, and of course this is very reminiscent of George's The Only Thing Worth Writing About, which of course he's pulling from Faulkner, who also pulled from Shakespeare, right? Uh, the human heart in conflict with itself. And along with that, there are a lot of other elements within the Shakespearean tragedy that aid and and bring that conflict within the hero's soul into a bigger clash with one another. And some of those things that could occur are like temporary abnormal conditions of mind, such as Lear's episode in the wilderness, or, if you will, Daenerys at the end of A Dance of Dragons and Danny Ted eating weird berries. She's just like got a lot of trips. She does a lot of trips throughout her storyline and not just, you know, on Dragonback. <laughs> There are supernatural encounters that provide knowledge, such as Macbeth's encounter with the witches or the ghost of Hamlet's father. And we see that a lot of times, such as like with Danny's encounter in the House of the Undying. But of course, uh, there's Quaith, you know, your favorite character. And the thing is like, yeah, Quaith's not a character. She's, she's as much a character as like the witches in Macbeth. They don't have like any... They don't have personalities necessarily either. They're a driving force and they're there to aid Macbeth's sort of ambition that's colliding within his soul, right? And for Danny, Quaith, along with the Undying, create this same sort of conflict where she's longing for love and companionship, but also wants power and is hoping power will bring her those things. But the more she gains power, the more she fears those around her, partially because power puts you in a precarious situation, but also because all these prophecies are like, yo, everyone's going to stab you in the back. <laughs> love starts to seem like a poison to you. Like love is wrapped up in betrayal. That's something Danny talks about in a lot. And I love about what you're saying about this outward conflict mirrored in the inner conflict. That's something that comes out so strongly for Danny in dance as these her emotional struggles and her different suitors and her relationship to her dragons are all mirrored in the larger big picture conflict of what's going on in Essos and the compromises she has to make and how she feels about them. And that combination of things being on, on a grand historical scale but also reducible to accidents or temporary conditions of mind, uh, that, that's something that I think strongly resonates about Shakespeare. And one of the reasons, as you were saying, it ages so well is because it... it kind of pays heed to both large forces and small forces within human life and that's something i think george is definitely going for in danny's earth and you have all these big swirling ideas of destiny coming together around her but also her decisions large and small taking center stage and i think you, you see that running through a lot of this chapter in her dream sequences where it's partially just about her being a big important targaryen character but also about everything she's doing and deciding along the way and i i think I think we really see that come together in a lot of big Danny moments, like the end of Dance, like you were saying, where she's she's finally alone for the first time in her story, but she's she's filled up with all these ghosts and all these narratives, and it's 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 gonna have that human heart in conflict with itself, but reflected on the larger scale. So that's really what makes you tremble when it comes to winds when she embraces a different side of herself and how that's going to affect all of Essos and Westeros in her path. Yeah, and. <laughs> The, the the other interesting thing about all of this too is George has talked about how he's always had the end states of these characters in mind from the get-go. He hasn't had the pathways all, always established, as we've seen in 
his various ways of trying to write a dance with dragons and his various failings in writing a dance with dragons until he actually came up with some sort of solution that still hasn't totally played out as we're getting into the Winds of Winter itself too. At the same time though, like I think when you're looking at the end game that George has always had in mind for various characters, I think that George always knew that Daenerys Targaryen was going to ultimately die in the story. So him embedding these Shakespearean tragic elements into Danny's story early in her arc, at the end of Act 1 of her arc, really is setting the stage for what's going to happen come the future of her storyline. So when we're talking about Danny as a Shakespearean tragic hero, I think we have to look at it in terms of George is looking at the long-term picture of what Danny's going to be doing 25 years after the publication of, of A Game of Thrones, maybe, possibly. Hopefully, someday, maybe, possibly. But at the same time, like he still wants to provide a pathway that is believable, but also showing us some real pathos, too, in her arc, in her tragedy. And that's really, really important for establishing Daenerys as a character and establishing the foundation for the end of her story, even in the first book of seven books in total, eight or nine books, whatever it's going to be. <laughs> 13, 20, 25, one for every single year that's passed. But yeah, exactly. And he's telegraphing a way of reading Danny's story. Like, as you said, there's a lot of pathos wrapped up in it. And it's hard not to be sympathetic for Danny and her cause, right? She She's portrayed as someone who had no power and is learning to step into her own. And of course, a lot of people I'm sure can relate to that feeling. And then she she has some lofty goals, right? Like, wanting to eliminate slavery that's pretty worthy and she gains the means to do so at the end of this book at the counterpart to this chapter and i think a big part of what makes something a what makes someone a shakespearean tragic hero and as ac bradley says is that they are a great person right like great not necessarily meaning morally good but they are larger than life they are magnanimous and i think daenerys is definitely that she has again that very single-mindedness not in a bad way but she's tr so driven right and she keep she has to keep going forward and we see how difficult that is for her as she reminds herself if i look back i am lost and whereas when she comes upon asapor She's told by Jorah, oh yeah, you should just buy these slaves. And Barrison's like, no, nah, we're not do having anything to do with this. She instead tries to overthrow the system. In a way that is in itself one form of a way that this greatness can manifest because she's trying to do something revolutionary. Whether it's good or bad, same as we're unsure here, like, is a little up in the air, but she's trying to do something. And a big part of course that makes the Shakespearean tragic hero work is that you know they're built up but ultimately through their own flaws and faults something happens and and they meet their end right they die and for me that makes it difficult to believe that Danny succumbs solely to madness to the madness of power right at the end like there has to be something more there because Lear doesn't die because he's mad. Othello doesn't die because he's mad. Richard III doesn't die because he's mad. Neither do Brutus or Cassius or any of them. They die because of some fault. There might be those short moments of madness, but ultimately those are still born out of their own human desires and soul. And I see that happening for Danny, right? I mean, the dragons, in a way, are also another manifestation of that. Not only are they power, it's her rising to the top, but I mean, as they say, right? 
the higher they go, the harder they fall. Yeah. And, you know, Lauren Shakes of Thrones talked about in our Edward 15 episode how Brutus is described by Shakespeare as the noblest of Romans. I mean, I think we can maybe not convincingly, but somewhat convincingly talk about Daenerys as being the noblest of the Westerosi, right? The the person who is willing to free slaves, to end the power structure, to break the wheel. But ultimately, those noble impulses and those noble deeds all have to be matched against some of the darker sides of Danny, some of the violent sides of Daenerys Targaryen. And I think that's what makes a great tragic hero, both in Shakespeare and a great tragic hero in the form of Daenerys Targaryen in A Song of Ice and Fire, that she has those elements of darkness that are intermixing with those noble qualities that she's expressing over and over and over again. And not just expressing, but also participating in deeds to showcase her nobility, her ultimate nobility. So... It's great. It's great that we have Danny as a tragic noble hero in the books. I do agree that Danny is not going to be going in that kind of mad pathway because I think that's, you know, it's um to paraphrase Stephen Atwell, when he's talking about Stannis' death at the end of season five. It's basically just an asshole getting hit by a truck when Jon Snow stabs Daenerys Targaryen at the end of season eight because she's gone power mad. And I think it's a much better story to have her be a much better story to have her be the tragic hero who ends up dying as a result of that nobility and darkness intermingling and forming one tragic character in the form of Daenerys Stormborn, Daenerys of House Targaryen, the Unburnt, all of those wonderful things that make that make Danny the, char- the character that we all love so much and hate sometimes too. You have to have the hero contained within the villain or, or and the villain contained within the hero because that's where the contemplation for the audience sets in and you have to think about how your own goals could be twisted and corrupted and you could become a different person without seeming to change. And I think that's, that's a very difficult thing to write, but it's, it's a legacy from a a lot of the, a lot of the canon that we react to when we read books like this. And I think it's definitely what George is, is going for with Danny that you never, you never lose sight of the, the original goal, even as it gets farther and farther away. She says in this chapter, the, the red dork at some level gets farther away the more she chases it. And I think that about wraps us up for this episode of Game of Thrones Daenerys 9. Thank you so much, Eliana, for coming on. It's so much fun to have you back for one of our episodes. It's been, I, I guess, now 55 episodes, 50, excuse me, 58 episodes since we've had you on. And we're just happy to have you back now. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And again, big regrets that this is 69 but i always enjoy hanging out with the two of you in any way possible so thanks for having me on and thanks for letting me talk about this and for engaging and and i don't know Uh, i don't know thank you (laughs) thank you friends you guys are always so cute you're always being like all nice and friends with each other and i'm I'm gonna go on a weird tangent for a second and be like emmett and chloe are just so nice at giving compliments this is absolutely true there's so there's just such generous people in terms of their love and I think Jeff has learned to do that from Evan. <laughs> I don't I don't mean it like that. I, I think that um it and I think that it you guys bring it out in other people. And never mind, no, I don't Yes, very never sweet. Mind. Thank but you so you, much for saying so. You're uh, the best. Uh, no, I fucked this up. Now I sound like now I sound like I'm saying just a fucking asshole when I'm not saying that at all. I'm like saying you guys are always so cute, saying how much you I love think each the other. message got through. Jeff, are you horribly offended? I'm so offended right now. I, I, I if you had asked me if I was offended a minute ago, I wasn't. But now a minute later, I am absolutely not offended. It's wonderful. I, I, I know. I, I think it's actually true. You know, Emmett brings out the best in me. 
Eliana, you bring out the best of me too. So I really appreciate your friendship now. As we talked about at the beginning of this episode, a six-year-long friendship that has spanned. You Christ. know, um, the, you know, we've had the Winds of Winter energy was being published and during the time of our friendship, and um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> a dream of friends. So, Eliana, tell tell all, all our uh, all our listeners where they can find your stuff. Yes. Uh, so again, you can find me at Girls Gone Canon together with my co-host Chloe at Lies and Arbor. And we are going to be starting our His Dar materials. We read sometime end of July. Uh, and you can also find me on the Maester Monthly podcast every now and then together with Jeff. <laughs> we have a we have a riot. We had a riot here. It's always it's always an adventure. Excellent, excellent. And uh, as for us. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. You can uh, rate and review us over on iTunes and Google Play. Check us out on Spotify. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, check out our Patreon if you haven't already. Patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beavish on Twitter, Brenda Beavish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics, vice and fire.wordpress.com. So... Join us next week as the Lannister dudes reckon with how royally fucked they are because Rob Stark just owned them. Woo woo! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Tyrion Nine is a is a highlight reel for sure for anyone who wants to watch uh, Rob Stark win and Tywin lose, and that does describe both of us. So that's a it's a very kind of it's a less abstract chapter than this one. It's it's kind of very 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 kind of blunt and plot oriented, but there's a lot of great stuff to go into, and it sets up Tyrion's uh, storyline in book two perfectly. So. Join us next week for Tyrion 9, and thanks for listening, everybody.